I haven't told any of you all, but a while back I took up a new hobby, okay? I've been skateboarding. <laughs> Don't laugh, I'm getting pretty good. I'm getting really good. So this past weekend, I decided I'd have Jan come out and shoot some video of me doing some of my tricks. Now, you, you might not recognize me because I'm trying to keep it on the down low. I put on a wig, kind of disguised myself. But here's me doing some of my new tricks that Jan shot this weekend. Thank All right. I have a confession to make. That, that wasn't really me. So, uh, sorry. It, it's a guy named Brian Sumner. And Brian was born in Liverpool, England. And if you know anything about Liverpool, it's an industrial town, very blue-collar, very tough town, kind of Pittsburgh. His father was an angry, kind of abusive guy, used to beat Ryan, Brian pretty badly. So Brian grew up with a tip, chip on his shoulder. He was a violent, got into a lot of fights. But the way he would escape is by skateboarding. And by the time he was 18, he was the best skateboarder in England. And he realized the real skateboard scene was in Southern California. So he moved to L.A. And within about a year, between the time he was 18 and 19, he became one of the top professional skateboarders in the world. He was literally making millions with appearance money and endorsement money and things like that. And so he turns 19, meets this beautiful young lady, and decides, you know, I think this young lady is the love of my life. This is my soulmate. So at the age of 19, he and his girlfriend drive the five hours to Las Vegas, go to the first wedding chapel they can find, go in and get married. Within about three months, she's pregnant with their son. And Brian... And his wife and his son have continued to live happily ever after. Or maybe not, I don't know. So today we're looking at uh, chapter 10 in the book of Acts. We've been in this series for about eight weeks now. And today we get all the way up to chapter 10. And I'm going to teach about some events that happen in chapter 10. But first let's start with a word of prayer. Father, I'm so grateful that we can gather to worship in this country. And it's at this moment, Father, I realize that my friends here at Rock Hills, they don't need to hear from me, Father. They, they need to hear from you. So, Lord, would, would you please speak and let me get out of the way and let your words and your truth go forth and accomplish what you desire in the hearts and in the minds of my friends here at Rock Hills. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And so in the first several weeks that we've been looking at Acts, we've talked about what's been going on. And, and if you may remember, a lot of you probably know, that the first four books of the Bible are the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are historical accounts of the words and the ministry of Jesus up to the time of his crucifixion and his resurrection from the dead. 
And the accounts, the historical accounts, continue in the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, Dr. Luke records the events as this new movement, a movement called The Way, this Christian movement, begins to spread around the world. And so what we've looked at in chapter 1, we see that Jesus is in Jerusalem, the, the resurrected Jesus with his followers. He said, just wait in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit's going to come. And then the Holy Spirit comes. This powerful, powerful moment when the, the Holy Spirit comes down. Peter preaches a, a sermon. 3,000 people, mostly Jewish, come to know Jesus. And throughout the early chapters of Acts, there's recorded many amazing events. We see the conversion of Saul in chapter 9. And then we get to chapter 10. And chapter 10 is this kind of unusual chapter because it, it sort of a, marks a diverting point, a, a crossroads. You see, for nine chapters, the Christian church has been basically limited to Jerusalem. And it's been limited to spreading just among Jews. And this was not what God intended at all. You may remember that the last words that Jesus spoke, as recorded in Matthew, before he ascended into heaven, it's called the Great Commission, Matthew 28. And Jesus looked at his followers. He said, listen, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I'll be with you every step of the way. And then in chapter 1 of Acts, he repeats the same thing. Go, go throughout the world. But they weren't doing it. And the reason is that the Jews had these very cultural laws, these strong restrictions against even associating with Gentiles. Gentiles were considered unclean. If a Jew was to even talk to a Gentile, they had to go through this ceremonial cleaning, which was a big hassle. So all their lives, all these Jewish guys who are now Christians have been taught and it's sort of ingrained in them, I can't talk or associate with Gentiles. And so they're sitting here in Jerusalem doing nothing, not doing what God told them to do. And so in chapter 10, God decides to get active. And so we see this amazing encounter between a Gentile, Cornelius, and the Jewish apostle, now a Christian, Peter, as they come together, God orchestrates this because God realizes he has to do something. So all before chapter 10, it's basically focused on Jerusalem and the Jews. After chapter 10, we see, finally see the spread of the gospel throughout the world. And this is the critical chapter where God has to get involved. And so what happens is what we're going to see in this is really a case study in a salvation of an individual. And so this is my goal today. Listen, this is my goal. When you leave here, I hope and I pray that you have a better understanding of the salvation process. You could argue that there's nothing more important, there's no doctrine more important in the scripture than salvation because it determines our eternal destiny. So that's my goal today, that you will leave understanding that a little bit better. So let me give you a quick summary of chapter 10, because it's, it's a long chapter. We can go into a lot of different things. It starts out, Cornelius, who's a Roman and a centurion, is sitting at home. But he's, he seems to be a seeker after God. And so God, in response to the seeking, appears to Cornelius and says, Look, 
I'm going to help you out. Send your men to Peter and ask Peter to come talk to, to you. And so he does. And about the same time, God is working in Peter, who's in a different city. He's in Joppa. And God appears to him in a vision. And this is at a time when Peter is hungry. And what God does, he has this this sheet with all kinds of food in it up here. It lowers down from heaven. But there's reptiles, there's birds, there's shellfish, all kinds of stuff that Jews were not allowed to eat according to the the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and their Old Testament cultural sanitary laws. And God says, Peter, go and eat. And he says, Lord, I can't eat that stuff. It's unclean. it's, it's, It's... outlawed. It's forbidden in the books of Moses. And God says, Peter, do not call anything unclean that I have made clean. And so if you love shellfish, if you love lobster or crab or shrimp, this is the moment you've been waiting for. We are now allowed to eat all these foods. Those cultural laws are abolished. And Peter says, okay, Lord, I get it. And then God says, now you're going to go to the Gentile Cornelius and Peter's like, oh, okay, Lord. And he goes. And the first thing he says to Cornelius is, hey, you know the laws. I'm not even supposed to be here, but God told me to come. So something's going on. And Cornelius says, yeah, I know something's going on. He gave me a dream, told me to send for you. So they're starting to talk. And then Peter shares the gospel with Cornelius. And Cornelius makes the decision, along with his friends and relatives that are there, makes the decision to put their faith in Jesus. So that's a summary of chapter 10. Now, what I'm going to focus on today is I see three common characteristics of salvation that we see in chapter 10, and I think I have those listed. You know, we see these common characteristics throughout the Scripture, but they are exemplified so clearly in chapter 10 that I wanted to list them for you. We see a seeking heart. We see a presentation of the gospel, and we see God's participation. And throughout my years as a Christian, as I've heard testimonies, as I've heard the stories of people who become Christians, as I read the Bible, every way I've experienced and become exposed to salvations, I've seen these three characteristics. But let me say this. We we can't put God in a box. He is able to do what he wants to do on this earth. I'm just telling you that as you see the entire council of Scripture, you will see these three characteristics almost all the time. So let's begin with the first, a seeking heart. And I think we have uh, the first few verses of chapter 10 of Acts, and they go like this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. And that's the vision where he was told to go and send men to Peter. And he obeyed. But what we see here in these first few verses is that he did have a seeking heart. He was praying regularly. You see, he must have seen something. He was living in Israel. He was living in Caesarea. He must have seen something that was going on in these Jewish people. You see, he's a Roman. The Romans were basically a-religious. You know, they gave lip service to their mythological gods like Jupiter. They, they sort of pretended that they worshipped Caesar, the emperor of, of Rome. 
But deep down, it was more like, you know, rubbing a lucky rabbit's foot. It was just this cultural thing that everybody did. But this guy Cornelius was different. Something happened in him. And what made it even more unusual is he's a centurion. That means he was in command of a hundred men. These guys were tough dudes. This would be the equivalent of like special forces guys, you know, Navy SEALs and Delta Force. These guys were bad hombres, okay? They were tough. And what happened is this would be the last guy you would expect to begin to seek out after God. And it wasn't much. He, he just kind of probably, God, are you there? God, I'm going to help the poor. And God responds to a seeking heart. Now, that, that may surprise you because our culture tries to push this distorted image of God as, as some sort of grumpy old man up in heaven, really doesn't want much to do with us. Really, you know, don't bother me with your prayers. I got more important stuff to do than deal, deal with you little peons. I've got a universe to run, okay? That, that's kind of the way our culture, you know, the image that God is pushing. But that's not the image we have in the Bible at all. In fact, in Matthew 7, Jesus says these words, and I think these are some of the most comforting words that we can have. And Jesus is talking, and he says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. What an amazing, amazing picture of God. And we just sang, you know, you're a good, good father. This is a good father. He responds to a seeking heart. The best image we have of this, in my opinion, is in the parable of the prodigal son, right? Luke chapter 15. And you remember that parable. The the 'er ne'er-do-well brother comes to his father and disrespects him. He says, I don't want you, dad. I want my money. Give me my money. And the father gives him his money. He goes off. He squanders it in wild living. And what's the picture of the father throughout that parable? What's the father doing every day? What does he do? He goes out to the boundary of his property, out to his fence, and he looks down the road, just hoping for his son to seek after him. And what does he do when he sees the son walking up the road? He runs to him. What an image of how God responds to a seeking heart. This is is the God of the universe, the good, good father. And, you know, we've seen this same dynamic every year when we go to Honduras. I've been gone, I've been going eight years in a row. And every year I've gone down there, it's usually 40 or 50 families, so 40 or 50 men we get to know. And every single year, there's one or two of those guys when you get talking to them said, you know what? Or maybe even more sometimes, we've been praying for water here for years. It's, it's sort of the cry of Cornelius. They pray to this God, and, and you talk to them. They're really not religious. They really don't know the gospel. They just have this sense that there's a God up there, and maybe if I call out to him, maybe if I seek him, he will respond. And you know what God does to that? That prayer in Honduras, he moves in the hearts of men here in Rock Hills, and he stirs their heart. And what do those men do? They do something really crazy. They spend their own money, their own vacation time, and they go halfway around the world to bring water, but also bring the gospel. And just like 2,000 years ago, God brought Cornelius and Peter together. 
2,000 years later, God is responding to the prayers of the men in Honduras by bringing Rock Hill's men and the men of Honduras together. God is still in the business of miracles, so he still responds to a seeking heart. That is one of the common characteristics in the salvation process. Now, the second one is a presentation of the gospel. And we see that here in chapter 10 of Acts. This is actually a beautiful presentation. When Peter gets there, this is what he says. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Wait a minute. Jesus told you that a long time ago, Peter, but that's okay. <laughs> he had, took, a, took a vision for you to get that again. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. Remember that. Peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Remember that. Lord. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Israel and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. What a beautiful presentation of the gospel. Did you see that? You see, he says, Jesus brought peace. There was a radical break in relationship when we rebelled and sinned. It was a broken relationship. God initiates and brings Jesus to establish peace. And it said, Jesus was Lord of all. That was the, the terminology back 2,000 years ago to say, he's God, the Lord God. So this gospel presentation includes Jesus reconciled the break in relationship. He was God himself. He did it. Later on, he says, he was crucified. We saw him raised from the dead. We were eyewitnesses. And now we're here to share the truth that if all you have to do is believe in him and you're saved. Now that's good news. He even says it in there. We're here bringing good news. You see, that's what gospel means. The word gospel means good news. All other faiths are a list of rules. If you follow these rules well enough, maybe, just maybe, God will accept you. That's what all the other faiths said. I've studied them. Whether it's Islam, Buddhism, it's works-based. If you're good enough, maybe, maybe God will accept you. Folks, that's not good news. I mean, this incredible burden of following these rules and never knowing if your relationship with your father is established, that's not good news. What Christianity is, listen to this, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is the news of historical event. That's what Peter brought to Cornelius. He says, I've got news for you. Something happened. 
This guy came to the earth. He was crucified. He rose again to pay the debt for your sins. That is good news. All you have to do is believe in him, and your debt is paid. What incredibly good news. And that is the gospel. Now, why is that such a common thing in salvation stories? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons. I think the most important reason is when you have a seeking heart, how are people supposed to know how to get reconnected with their father? You know, I had that. Other people have had that. Cornelius had that. And it's like, there might be a God, but I don't know how to, what to do. And what the gospel says is, here's what you do. You just believe in the gift that he gave you. And there's power in that. Paul says this in Romans 1.16. He says, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. The power of God. There's something powerful about the gospel. And I think it's powerful because it demonstrates what a good, good father we have. This is a father who initiated, who was proactive in sending his son to pay our debts. That's, that's a powerful thing. In fact, Paul thought this was so powerful, that's basically all he would talk about. Yeah, go read 1 Corinthians chapter 2 sometime. It's a great chapter. Paul has been criticized by the church at Corinth that he's not a very good speaker, okay? There's a guy named Apollos there that can just knock it out of the park when he preaches. Everybody's mesmerized. And Paul says, look, I know what you're saying. He even says this right in the Bible. I'm not, I was weak of speech. I wasn't a good communicator. And so what I decided to do was know nothing but the cross of Christ, Jesus and him crucified. That's all I'm going to talk about is the gospel because the gospel is that powerful. Now, there's nothing wrong with videos. There's nothing wrong with stories, but that isn't what Paul did. He just went around preaching the gospel. That's how powerful it was. And again, we see the same power every year when we go to Honduras. Because every one of these guys has heard some things about Christianity, about religion, but every single one of them, because of the, the influence of the uh, Assemblies of God Church, what they've been told is the women have been told, if you wear makeup, if you wear jewelry, you're going to hell. Guys, if you ever drink or you ever smoke or you play soccer on Sunday, you're going to hell. It's a works-based mentality. They really have never heard the gospel. And when Mark gets up and preaches in the evening meetings and shares the gospel, it's like an explosion goes off in those villages. It's an amazing thing to see. When they, at first, they don't believe it. This, this can't be right. You, 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 no, this, this can't. And, Mark has to show them in the Bible where it is. And he has to have Arnaldo translate it and demonstrate it to them. This is what the Bible says, and it has this incredible power. And so that's why God chooses to use a presentation of the gospel in most salvation stories, because it is so, so powerful. And the third and the final characteristic is that God participates. And we saw that right in the beginning, right? Very beginning of the chapter. You know, Cornelius is there. He's praying. He's, you know, kind of just quiet call of a seeking heart. And, and God responds, <laughs> gives him a dream, a vision to go, go get Peter. And then God shows up again. 
toward the end. And we see this in, chapter, in verses 44 through 46. This is what the Bible says. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on even Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And so God participates. And again, what an incredible encouragement. I love that song, the reckless love of God. There's nothing he's going to pursue us. God participates, the quietest call of our heart, and he gets involved. And then he gives gives us an assurance. And, And you might say, well, why does God have to participate? I mean, if I seek him, can't I just find him? I mean, that's what Jesus said. Yeah, but Jesus didn't talk about the participation of God. He, he didn't give the whole story there. I mean, if you seek him, you will find him because God is going to participate. And we see this, the necessity of this in, in Corinthians chapter 2. Paul is writing, none of us can really feel how dark this world is, I don't think. There's a darkness, a blindness that shrouds us that we just can't even sense and what Paul says in Corinthians chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 4, is there's the, the ruler and the evil of this world has blinded our hearts so that we can't see the truth and the beauty of the gospel. But then he follows it by saying, but God shines the light of the knowledge of the beauty and the truth of the gospel into your hearts. So if you are a believer today, God participated in that. He's the one that shone that light into your heart. If you're a seeker here today, if you're here and you're, and you're still wondering, God is involved in this process. And I saw this, this involvement in my journey. See, at the very beginning, I really wasn't even seeking God. I was empty and hurting, but, but I thought it was Jan's fault. <laughs> I thought, you know, if only she was a better wife, I wouldn't be as empty and hurting. Uh, and so I separated, and then God began to draw me through Jan. She recommitted to her faith and started to live out her faith in Christ. And a light shone into me, a drawing occurred. And this is exactly what Jesus said. These are the words of Jesus. These are so important. John six forty four. Jesus is talking. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up in the last day. You, you would think... Jesus is the God of the universe, right? You would think he'd say, I'm the most brilliant person who ever walked the earth, which is true, and I can convince any one of you of anything. That isn't what he says. Apparently, the darkness and the blindness because of our culture and our sin is so thick and pervasive that God has to be involved and draw us. And I saw that in my journey. And when Jan committed to her faith, and I saw her, a light, a light shone into my heart. But, you know, it wasn't finished then. I, I started to be drawn. I started to seek. And God graciously brought me the gospel through a book called Mere Christianity. And over time, I, I got to this point where I was like, Lord, I, I believe you. I, I think this is truth, but I, I'm a little afraid. I'm not, I I just don't know. And just like here, where the Holy Spirit came, and by the way, after the Holy Spirit came down, all Cornelius 
his family, he and his friends, they all made a decision to follow Jesus, and they all got baptized. That's how chapter 10 ends. And that happened to me. God came down and gave me this assurance that he was there, that he really did love me. And, and you see, if you're a Christian today, I hope you take great encouragement from that. Because not only does he draw you at the beginning, like he did with Cornelius, not only did he participate when you made that decision, he gave you an assurance of your faith. I, I felt this peace, this, this peace that I'd never felt before, that yes, this is right, this is true. And it gave him the assurance to put my faith in Jesus. Not only does he do it then, but he does it throughout your journey. You see, sometimes I feel like, you know, God, we have this relationship, but I'm the one doing all the work. I mean, I'm getting up every morning. I'm the one reading your Bible. I don't see you do anything. You just sort of seem to sit up there. That's a lie. That is a lie. Because Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. God continues to draw me out of this, this dark cultural blindness that we're all just, just immersed in. And so every time that I have the will and the power to get up in the morning and spend time with God, I'm convinced that's from his grace drawing me to him as he's continued to do over the last 29 years. And so I hope you get great encouragement from that if you were a believer. And so there we have it. That's chapter 10, an amazing encounter between Cornelius and Peter and the three characteristics of salvation. And that concludes our message. Wait a minute, I almost forgot. Brian Sumner. Oh yeah, Brian Sumner. What about Brian? Well, when we left Brian, he was 19. Just got married, just had his first son. And the question was, did he live happily ever after? And I think you probably know he didn't. Quite quickly after his son was born, he began to spiral more into alcohol and drugs, which he had used occasionally. But worse than that, his violence got worse. Started getting into fights, started to be incredibly abusive to his wife. Never hit his wife, but was abusive to her. Violent, lots of fights with, with other people. And one time he got in a fight, beat someone up so badly, looked like he was going to go to prison. But his lawyer worked out a deal, and he got probation, but he had to do community service. And they gave him a list of things that he could do for community service. And he looks down at it and he says, Okay, I don't want... Look at this. Community service at a Christian secondhand store. A Christian thrift store. Well, I get all my clothes from thrift stores, so that's probably not a bad deal. And, you know, I've always wanted to talk to one of these crazy Christians. These people are, you know, like Looney Tunes. And maybe I'll just go do service there and, you know, see what they have to say. And so he does. He goes and he starts working in a Christian thrift store. He says, I'm, I was amazed. They loved me. They shared the gospel with me. And they even gave me a book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And I began reading that. And, and part of me was so drawn to it, but, but part of me was so scared. I, I didn't want to really give up the lifestyle I was living. And so what happened? Well, I'll let Brian tell you in his words. I realized that as I was trying to prove God wasn't real, 
Through his scripture, he was speaking to me. I wanted to be filled. I wanted to meet. I wanted to know, is this Jesus alive? Is he who I can't see going to change my life? Is he really who he says he is? Through reading the scripture, through getting to know what the Bible says, I realized this. I realized that the world changed when a man called Jesus Christ lived. Now I'm beginning to see that you do have a plan and a will for my life, and you do want me to be married to this woman, and you do have the answer to everything. And through that process, I got to a place where I said, but God, I've never met you, and I won't follow something that's fake. I need to meet you. And I cried out and said, forgive me of my sin. Jesus, I believe in your name. I prayed the sinner's prayer, but I've never met you, and I need to. And as I cried out to God that night, I felt in an instant the craziest thing I can ever say in life. I felt the presence of God enter that room, and in one instant it was like, sitting here right now, the lights go on. That was it. I can't believe this is real. Beginning to cry, I can't believe this is real. I can't believe people don't know this is real. Instantly, I've got to tell people, I've got to share. And I began to pray and cry out to God, and this was worship. Jesus Christ showed up that night and changed my life. It's transformed everything about me, and today, I'm remarried to that woman. My son's nine. My baby girl is two and a half, and she's at home today, pregnant with our third child. It isn't the same. There's nothing that has me. I go around the world sharing the gospel. There is an angry Brian. I love on people, or suicidal Brian, or divorced Brian. I'm a deacon at the church. I go places preaching because Jesus Christ made himself known to me that night, and he forgave my sin. Am I still angry? That is a crazy question. I'm not. I'm not angry. I am by no means the same person. To put it in perspective, I'm really second. And Christ is first. His word is first. His love is first. His blood is first. And now for me, I'm second. And I enjoy it. That's who I'm meant to be. I'm meant to be second. Brian Sumner, and I am second. You see, his story demonstrates all three of those characteristics. He just had a little bit of a seeking heart, enough to choose the, the Christian thrift store. He got a clear presentation of the gospel through the people and through the book, Case for Christ. And when he needed it, when he was, when he was right on the edge, when, when he needed to know for sure, God participated and gave him an assurance of his reality. Folks, 2,000 years ago, this lonely man in Israel, just a quiet cry of his heart to God, the centurion called Cornelius, and God responded. 2,000 years later, the quiet cry of a heart from Brian Sumner, and God responded. That is the God of heaven. That is the good, good Father. And he has promised you, if you seek, you will find. Let's pray. Father, I don't even know how to say thank you for standing 
at the gate and waiting for me, the prodigal son, just to show the slightest interest in having a relationship with you, and then you responded. Father, thank you. Lord, I pray for all my friends here at Rock Hills. I understand that it takes your Holy Spirit, your presence, to do work in their lives. And I pray that by your grace and mercy, you will do that today. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.